All right, Gospel of Mark is where we are today. I'm excited. I, um, we go through, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, only been with us maybe a few weeks, uh, we go through the entire Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, Wednesday nights in the Old Testament, currently in the book of Job, um, and we started in Genesis in the Old Testament, have worked our way to Job. New Testament, six years ago, some have asked, why, why are we going to Mark after Romans? And that's a good question. Six years ago, we, we started our study through the Bible in Philippians, and we went all the way through from Philippians through to the end, Revelation, then we went to Matthew. And when we got to the, towards the end of Matthew, I'm not going to say the Lord told me. I'm just going to say that I felt that instead of going through the Gospels in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we'd do a Gospel, and then we went to Acts and Romans, now back to Mark, and after Mark, maybe First and Second Corinthians, and after that, jump back, and we're getting kind of down there a little way, so I'm not going to commit to that, but that's kind of why we're in Mark today, getting back into a Gospel. And I, I encourage you in your personal Bible study time, to get into the Gospels regularly. I think so often we can fall into that, says, you know, well, I know the story. I've read the story a lot, you know, and, and getting into the other thing. Guys, we can never read the Gospel enough. We can never read the story of, of the life of our, of our Lord and Savior enough. And so we get back into, into Mark today, and some ask the question, why, why are there four Gospels? What, wouldn't it have just to, to kind of bring it all together? Well, it, it, we, we understand that the gospel writers were all coming from a, from a different angle to different audiences when they originally wrote the gospels. They in no way contradict each other. As a matter of fact, when taken as a whole, they complement each other. And if you, as a study, when you're studying through the Gospels, reading them, fantastic, and you should do that. But when you get into a deeper study of them, as we will in Mark, we'll find ourselves jumping to the other Gospels to kind of take an, a different look at it from a different angle, the same story, the same thing. The Gospel of Matthew, for instance. Matthew was writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And his main focus in his Gospel was to present Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The one that they had been waiting for. The one that had been promised. The one that they were, they were hoping would come. And Matthew's point was, he has come. He quotes the Old Testament more than the other gospel writers do because, again, he's trying to draw the connection that Jesus fulfills all of these scriptures of the Old Testament, of the coming Messiah. He has a genealogy that he places in the beginning of his gospel that begins with Abraham and goes through to Jesus, showing his connection from Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Now, Luke's gospel, written to a different audience, not to primarily Jews, but to primarily Gentiles. And he is bringing this idea of the Son of Man to the Gentiles, that focusing on largely the humanity of Jesus. Yes, fully God, but bringing the emphasis of fully man to the, to the gospel picture. And he has a genealogy as well, but it's interesting, again, because of his focus, his genealogy begins with Jesus and draws all the way back to Adam. John's gospel, to a, to a largely general audience, and his main focus is the deity of Jesus. Jesus, the, 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 the third, the, the, the son of God, he's focusing on that. As a, as a matter of fact, in the beginning of his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's, that's how he starts off his gospel. He goes on to tell us that the word is Jesus himself. And that brings us to Mark, 
Mark's gospel, most believe that it was written in Rome to the Roman church. And at a very specific time in the history of the church, in its infancy, in its early stages, but while it was facing intense persecution. Nero is the emperor at this time of Rome, and he is persecuting Christians at a, in an unbelievable manner. Focusing, targeting, he blames, he blames them for, for the fire that he started and, and all of that type of stuff. And the persecution that comes against them, brutally murdering Christians. There's stories that are told where he would, he would dip them in wax while they are alive and light them as torches in his garden. He would have animal skins sewn onto them and then release them into out where wild animals would then attack them for, for sport. This was what the church was facing at that time. And Mark's gospel is written to that church at that time. And it brings along and Mark's focus is on, on Jesus the Savior, yes, but the servant Savior, the one who came to serve. He focuses on, on the miracles of Jesus, the works of Jesus, more so than the words. We're going to see a lot of that, but he doesn't, we don't have like a Sermon on the Mount type of thing like we do in Matthew and Luke's account. We have much more focus on, on the works of Jesus, and they come in rapid fire succession. One of the words we're going to see repeated over and over and over in Mark's gospel is the word immediately. It's like 40 some times, immediately, immediately, immediately. It's kind of moving along at a really fast pace. And it's because of that that the early church, a lot of the, the common idea at that time was that Mark's gospel was simply an abbreviated version of Matthew's gospel, taking into, into account some of Luke's and kind of almost like a Reader's Digest condensed version. But later on, and primarily in the 19th century it came about, as they were starting to study the Gospels in more depth, they realized, and it's commonly held now, widely held, that Mark wasn't a copy or abbreviated version of Matthew, but it was actually the first Gospel written. It was, it was possibly even the first book in the New Testament. We don't have that for certain, but that's widely held now, that, that it wasn't copied from Matthew. As a matter of fact, Matthew and Luke would have used that as even a framework of that. Now, Mark, as we start to look at this and we see the, the author... Mark, John Mark, also known as, he's mentioned several times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Acts, Luke mentions him. Paul mentions him in several of his letters to the Colossians, to Timothy, to the letter of Philemon. Peter even mentions him and refers to him as his son in the faith in one of his letters. And Mark was not an eyewitness. He was not a, a follower of, of Jesus, an eyewitness follower, but he was with Peter. He traveled extensively with Peter. Some believe that he was even an interpreter for Peter. And that's where he got the, the message that he then took and put into the, into the gospel of Mark. He got his primary source was Peter. We are going to see as we move through that it is not in chronological order as we move through the gospel of Mark. He's taking different stories and, and fitting them together. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we move through it. We know some things about Mark, we know that his mother's name was Mary, another Mary in the Bible, many of them. His mother's name was Mary, and her home was used quite often in Jerusalem by the church at that time, the early church. Even so, where the prayer meeting, remember when Peter was in prison, and they all gathered together in a home, and they were praying for Peter's release? 
And they had so much faith that when Peter was let out and he's knocking on the door to be let in, they're saying, no, tell him to go away. We're praying. <laughs> he's, it must be a ghost. It must be an angel. You know, that was in her, in her home. Some tradition even holds that the Last Supper was held in, the, in Mary's upper room. Now, we don't, we don't know that for certain. A little bit of the evidence that might lend to that is that in Mark's gospel, we're going to see when we get towards, towards the end in, in chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, he references a young man who was in the Garden of Gethsemane, kind of standing off in the shadows, and he was, he was naked except he had a sheet around him. And then when, the, when they took Jesus away and all the disciples fled, they said that he was also seized, but he, he squirmed away, leaving the sheet and running away naked. He just says a, a young man. He doesn't identify the young man. Many believe that that was Mark himself speaking of that. But again, that's in, in chapter 14 when we get to the end. We know some more things about, about Mark. His, his, he was a cousin of Barnabas. And he was involved, invited to go along on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas as they set out. And we know as we follow along in the book of Acts that shortly into, the, into that first missionary journey, for whatever reason, we don't know exactly why, but Mark leaves them and returns home. He may be homesick. He was maybe like, man, this is way more than I thought I was getting into. We don't know. But he, he bails on the team and he goes home. And because of that, when they are, Barnabas and Paul are ready to head out again on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, I'm going to go get Mark. Let's go. And Paul says, no way. No way is he going with us. He bailed on us the first time. I need people that I can count on, and we can't do that. And that caused even so much as a, a division between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas took Mark and went. Paul then took Silas and went. Two teams sent out that way. But it caused a division. And I highlight that because, because when we look at Mark, we see, we see a man who, who no doubt had, had an excitement, had a passion, but we see that he, that he fell away. He, he, he had enough of a following of Jesus that he, he was willing to go to the garden, kind of follow along, but when things got kind, of, got kind of crazy, he ran away, just like the rest of the disciples. We see that he bailed out on the first missionary journey, and if you're here today and and you feel like you've blown it, like God had given you an opportunity at one time in your life to be used by him, but you've blown it. You bailed out. You ran away. You fell away. Whatever it is, I'm here to tell you today that God restores. The enemy would love to tell you that you blew it, and you are disqualified, and God could never use you, and you just sit off to the side, but I'm here to tell you, get back in the game, because God wants to use you. Because Mark, that same Mark that ran away naked, that same Mark that, that left and bailed on Paul and Barnabas in that first one, God used to write the gospel of Mark that you and I are studying today. Not only that, at the end of Paul's life, the one who said, no way, I can't, can't trust him, can't work with him, no way, at the end of his life, as he's sitting in a jail cell in Rome, he writes to Timothy and he says, when you come, bring Mark with you because he is useful to me in ministry. Somewhere along the line, and we don't know when that came back together, but Paul and Mark were reunited in ministry and God did great things in and through them. If that's you, take, take heart today. God restores. Well, let's begin our study today. The Gospel of Mark beginning chapter 1. Verse 1, notice 
he gives us this introduction, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel simply means good news. We all like good news, right? And all of us want to receive good news. The thing about good news is it's really relative, right? I mean, what's good news for you might be meh to me, and what's good news to some might be really bad news to others. I mean, Robin had mentioned sporting events last night. I don't know about you, but last night I got some really bad news. Grand Canyon lost. <laughs> but that's good news to New Mexico State fans. You know, so there's, there's kind of there's, what's good news for some, bad news for others. I don't know if, if, if you, when you hear these types of things every once in a while, when you hear that, I have bad news and I have good news, right? The good news is really, really good news if the bad news is really, really bad news, right? And when we look at the magnitude of it, I mean, again, the severity of the bad news, the reach of the bad news, I don't know... It, how many, I'm pretty sure, looking around the room, pretty much everybody when I mention this is going to be able to relate with a few exceptions, but it was 13 years ago, but all I have to do is say one name, Katrina, and everybody knows what I'm talking about. The hurricane that slammed into the, the coast down at Texas and Louisiana, and you know, the bad news came early. The, 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 the warning went out. There is a huge category four or five hurricane that is about ready to slam into the, the southern United States. The bad news that it is going to be devastating. But there was good news. Get out. You still have time. Evacuate. The roads are open now. Get out. Problem is, Many people didn't heed the warning. Many people thought, ah, it's not going to be that bad. The fact of the matter, it was way worse than they thought. And because of that, over 1,800 people perished because they did not heed the warning, because they did not get out. And guys, before we start talking about the good news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we have to understand what the bad news is. Because the good news is the greatest news ever. But the bad news is the worst news ever. See, the Bible tells us, and again, far-reaching as far as, as how the scope of it is, with the bad news for those people in Louisiana, wasn't as bad a news for you and I in Arizona. But this bad news reaches everyone because the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single human being who draws breath has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the bad news is the wages of sin is death. No one can escape that. And it's not just, it's not talking specifically of physical death. It's talking of spiritual death. And it's not, when it's, we're talking about physical and spiritual death, we're not talking about the end of existence. No, as a matter of fact, the existence goes on eternally. And the words that are used to describe it in the Bible for us, to give us some type of reference, it speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a darkness that is darker than anything, a darkness you can feel. 
it says it uses Jesus used words to describe it the worm that does not die as a matter of fact your worm that does not die and I don't know about you what the picture of that is but again we th- the, just being eaten by a worm and forever the heat the fire that is unquenchable and eternal why use language like that? Why, why be so graphic? And if you can pardon me, I believe that Jesus is using that to scare the hell out of us. Because that's a description of hell. But let me tell you, just as the forecast and the warning of Katrina, it is way worse than that. That is words that are simply used to describe this. Understand, hell was not created for you and me. Hell was not created for mankind. Hell was created for Satan and his fallen angels. That is, that is what hell was created for. And we need to understand, this is no joke. This is no game. That's the problem. The world thinks hell, hell will be just, I'm gonna, it's going to be great because that's going to be hanging out with all my friends there. No, hell is going to be the loneliest place you, have, you could ever imagine. There will be absolutely no joy, no peace, no relief facing the wrath of God forever. No love, no no anything that would bring any type of relief. Guys, that, that is the bad news. Our greatest need is a way out. Our greatest need is some type of evacuation plan. And that's where the gospel comes in. Because our greatest need was God's greatest deed. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angels declare, the good news of great joy will be for all people. The good news. The great news. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The good news is available to everyone. And that's where we come to today, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel, the good news. But notice, it's not just any good news. It has to be, again, the good news that relates to the bad news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First of all, let's break that down. Jesus, that is his given name. Jesus. Hebrew, Yeshua. Joshua. It means literally, Yahweh is salvation. The angels told Mary and Joseph what to name their baby, Jesus. They said, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> so they didn't have a mailbox with Christ on it out in front of their house. Christ is his title. Christ is the Greek word, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. That, they, that, that the one, again, that they have been waited for, waiting for, the anointed one, the anticipated deliverer, the one that the nation of Israel was looking for. That is his title. But here we get to, again, now, Jesus Christ, notice, the son, of, not of Joseph, the son of God. The, 
the historical fact that Jesus lived is not in question. If you get into a debate or an argument with an atheist or someone that just denies the existence that Jesus ever lived, realize that, that your argument can't go much farther because they're just denying fact, reality, outside of the Bible. That's not in question. But what comes into question is who Jesus claimed he was and who we believe he is. And here we see the Son of God. That is, again, his relationship to God. And that is crucial when we understand, again, the gospel. Because the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus, the Son of God, the only son, God gave. The Father gave. Romans, again, tells us that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became like you and I. Came as an offering for sin. And we see here, and notice it says the beginning of the gospel. We're going to see the story. The story is, again, Jesus, God himself, stepping off his throne in heaven, becoming like you and I, again, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful flesh because he was without sin. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as you and I are, yet without sin. He lived the perfect sinless life that you and I are supposed to and don't. He did. That's what we're going to see as we move through the the gospel itself and the record that Mark records for us is the life of Jesus, his perfect, sinless life, perfect reflection of God in, in human form. But it culminates with Jesus laying down his perfect life in exchange for ours, his suffering, his death, his burial, and again, his resurrection from the dead, defeating death. For you and I, taking our place. Guys, that's the gospel. We are all, we all have that bad news awaiting us, but God provided a way. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we see the beginning of the gospel. And let's, let's look now, verse 2. We're going we're gonna to take a, for a moment our focus off of, of Jesus and focus on the one that came with the message that he is coming, and that is John the Baptist. Let's look at that, beginning in verse 2. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. He was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here we see again John, John the Baptist. Initially, there's a quote here. It says, written in Isaiah. It's actually uh, a combination of three different prophecies that are put together. One comes all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 23. The next is Malachi 3.1. 
but primarily that verse three is Isaiah 40, verse three, and those are all put together here as this is laid out, and it's as it is written in Isaiah, highlighting Isaiah as the primary prophet at that, and that was common at that time. This is quoted in all four of the Gospels, and this is a prophecy of one that will come prior to the Messiah when he comes. And the, the nation of Israel, they were looking for this, this messenger to come. They were anticipating him, them thinking that it was actually going to be Elijah himself coming back. But here we see, as we, as we just look at this, I, that is God the Father, send my messenger, that is John, ahead of you, that is Jesus, to prepare your way. Now I want to spend some time this morning looking at two things. First, the message, and second, the messenger. Understanding that the message is God's message. It isn't John's message. It's God's message. John is simply his mouthpiece. This is the message that God proclaims. And it tells us that he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's again imagine that you get the warning that the hurricane is coming. And you to evacuate, well, that sounds great, except where do I go? How do I get there? And what if you got there and you found out that the only way out was a toll road and the toll was $100,000? All of a sudden, that's not as great a news anymore. But we need to find out what is the access? Where, where do we, how do we access this? We understand the gospel. We understand that Jesus died for our sins. How do we receive that? And here we see it, Repentance. Repentance. Repentance is not a feeling word. Repentance is an action word. Repentance is a change of mind that produces a change of direction. Let me ask a simple question. I'm not going to tax our math brains too much this morning. Let's say there's five frogs sitting on a log. Three of them decide to jump in the water, swim to the other side, and climb up on a rock on the other side of the pond. How many are left on the log? Five. Because deciding to do something doesn't mean anything until you do it. So many people come to that point and believe that repentance is a decision. Repentance is not a decision. Repentance is an action that is in response to a decision. It begins with confession. It begins with confession. Confession simply in its word, and you'll hear that a lot, confessing your sins. Confession means to agree with, to say the same thing as, to say the same thing as God when it comes to sin. First of all, what sin is. We, we in, our, in our human nature, put sin in this category. Oh, it was a mistake. It was a bad decision. It was a boo-boo. <laughs> in God's vocabulary, he calls us harlots, prostitutes, treason. It's not, it's not a small thing. And that's the first thing that we need to understand. Sin is cosmic treason against a holy and righteous and perfect God, our creator, who has every right 
to rule over his creation. It's interesting how we understand that in everything except when it comes to the ultimate of that. We somehow think that, okay, well, that works in every other situation except with me and my creator. The bottom line is, guys, what God lays out as, as sin, do this, don't do this, as he lays that out, when we rebel against that, guys, there's no other word for that other than treason, rebellion. So that's that what sin is, but also we have to agree with God as to what is sin, because the world will also try to define that for us. And in our flesh, we're going to try to make different degrees of things. And, and you know, the world is going to say, well, some of those things are so outdated. I mean, that was maybe good for back then, but we've, we've evolved. We've, you know, that, that, that's not, that, that can't be right anymore. And that, that has crept in so many different places. But bottom line, guys, none of it's changed. What was sin then is sin today. What was treason then is treason today. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word never changes, and it never will. So what he outlines for us in his word, those things that we are not to do, we don't do those. And those things that we are to do, we must do those. If we, if we go against that, that is sin. And then we also then have to embrace and agree with God that that sin requires punishment. That sin requires death. Because if, God would, if we would just say, well, God, I expect you to just turn a blind eye to that or to turn away from that. Guys, we don't understand who God is then. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. As a just God, he can't turn his, a blind eye to sin. If we were to take that on ourselves, if, 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 if someone were to brutally murder your entire family, and then stand before a judge, and the judge says, well, the, the guy says, well, I, I promise I won't do it again. Overall, I'm a pretty good person. This is the only bad thing I've really ever done, and I promise I won't do it again. And the judge says, okay, I believe you, dismissed. We'd say, that's crazy. That's absolutely unjust. But somehow we expect God to treat us differently because of our sin. So we have to agree with him that our, our sin deserves punishment. But then, guys, we also have to agree that the punishment has been paid by Jesus. Either he takes it or I do. That's confession. That's, that's embracing the fullness of confession. But confession has to be followed by contrition. There needs to be a brokenness in us over our sin. Not just sorry that we got caught. Not just upset that what we want to do goes against God's law. That's not contrition. That's not brokenness. But true confession will lead to contrition, a brokenness in ourselves over our sinful state. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. A godly sorrow produces a brokenness over sin. Confession leading to contrition, guys, and leading to conversion. That is a turning from your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus, receiving the free gift of salvation. That's the jumping off the log and actually swimming to the other side part of this. Not a decision, but an action. 
a, a turning away and a receiving. And, and we call that being born again. If you've never done that before and you do that today, you have the new life within you. You die to your old self and you receive the new life, being born again. Jesus said, unless you are born again, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what repentance is, a turning and a, and a receiving. 1 John 1 says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. You might be here today thinking, yeah, you know what? I get that. I've heard that a whole lot before, but you have no idea what my past is. You have no idea the amount of sin in my life. You have no idea what my life has been like before this. You're right, I don't. But God does. And Jesus said, I love you enough to take all of that on myself. His perfect blood was poured out for you. He bled himself into the ground from the cross for you to pay the full sin debt that you owe. Every single one of them. You can't out-sin the grace of God. He says here, that it's a baptism of repentance. And it tells us that they were coming out and being baptized. We're gonna look more into this when we get into verses nine through 11, but the point I wanna make out with this initially is because this is a Jewish, the Jewish people coming out. There were Gentiles, no doubt, in there, and we know that, but primarily a Jewish audience that is traveling out to see John and to hear this message. And while baptism that they were speaking of here wasn't foreign to Jews, it was foreign for them to do it. You see, Gentiles, they would require that Gentiles be baptized in order to become Jewish. They had to renounce their former ways and embrace the God of Israel, and Gentiles were baptized. But for Jews to be baptized... But John's message was a different message. He was challenging them to their very core that they can't be saved because you're Jewish. You can't be saved because you're a good person. You can't, all of this type of stuff. The only way to be saved, the only way to have your sin forgiven is to repent. And that, then that baptism was an expression, an outward expression of the fact that they were repenting of their sins. They were renouncing their dependence on their Jewishness their family heritage. And maybe you're here today and you think that you're gonna get to heaven because your family is saved, because your husband or your wife is saved, because your, your grandparents were, were saved or your dad was a pastor or whatever it might be. None of that can save anyone. It's a personal, a personal brokenness, repentance, They were renouncing their dependence on self-righteousness. So many in that Jewish culture were feeling that they were, simply, they were simply in because they were so much better than those Gentile dogs. Their, their goodness, their, their good righteousness was going to get them into heaven. And repenting, coming to that and being baptized, they were renouncing that. Guys, it... <laughs> It, it, like we talked about earlier, it's not that we could just say, well, that, that bad that I did, I've done more good than the bad, so I must be okay. It's got to be just on scales, right? No. You need to rely completely on the mercy of God. 
And it was symbolic. It was an outward demonstration of an inward reality. And like I said, we'll get into that a little bit more as we get into verses 9 through 11. But there's a reason And we can almost sense it as as you hear this, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 3 that he was also proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That there's a sense of urgency. There's a need to do this right now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Salvation is here. God's salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Embrace what he has done. Receive it today. Salvation is here, but also with that, understand that judgment is near. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bad news for those who refuse to repent. That's the message. And let's take a look at, for a few minutes this morning, the messenger that God uses. We see in John, an amazing man, an extremely humble man. I'm challenged by his humility. Here is a man that God is using in unbelievable ways. He, is not, he has not set up shop in Jerusalem, and the masses come. He's out in the wilderness, and when we go to Israel, we actually go to the area, the general area where John was baptizing in the Jordan, and it is in the middle of nowhere. Even today, there aren't any hotels around there. And people were flocking to see him and to hear him and to, and to repent. I mean, just, man, just one after another after another. But would you turn to me, because I want, I think this is important that we see, we get a little snapshot here, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew is the gospel immediately preceding Mark, back to chapter 11, I want you to see how Jesus describes John. Let's let's begin in verse 1, because I think there's an important point to hit here as we move through this. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, John the Baptist, while imprisoned, he's been arrested because of the message that he was bringing. It upset King Herod and his wife and everything, so he's in jail. It says, while imprisoned, he heard of the works of Christ. He sent word to his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. First off, before we get into Jesus talking about John, note this for a second. That John, here is John, this one that is used powerfully by God. It tells us in John's gospel, and we're going to get to this again next week, that Jesus, when he is baptized, it tells us that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. It tells us in John's gospel that when John the Baptist saw that, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that by, by what he saw there. He's the one who proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That John in prison now sends message to Jesus. Are you the one? Are you really the one that we've been waiting for? I don't know about you, but that brings me comfort. 
Because I hope I'm not the only one that ever has doubts. That ever, that ever goes through a time of, of questioning. Not, not outright denying, not outright, that, but just going through doubts. There's a difference between unbelief and doubt. And we go through that. And I'm, in, I'm encouraged that even one, a man like John went through that. And notice again, and it blesses me, notice Jesus' reaction. He doesn't say, would you go back and tell John to knock it off? Of course he knows. He better know. No, look what he says. Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. Go tell him what you've witnessed. And that just brings me great comfort. And guys, when we, when we are in those times of doubt, Go back into the word of God. Remember the things that, that you've heard and seen in your life. That's why fellowship is so important. Can I just continue to plug that? Why it's so important we get together? Because we all go through the difficulties. We all go through the struggles. We all go through the doubts. But when we see and hear what God is doing in one another's lives, that brings us back to that point, that place of solid standing well, verse 7, and this is where I, why I had us turn here. Listen to how Jesus describes this messenger that God uses in John the Baptist. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus will continue for a few more verses and then finish with one of his, his sayings that he says a lot. He who has ears, let him hear. And guys, we need to hear what Jesus is saying here about a messenger that God uses because guys, we are called to be his messengers today. We're called to take the message out to a lost and dying world. And again, it begins with humility. We need to understand our place. John, as successful as he was, the ministry that had grown there and how God was using him. Notice back in our, in our text in Mark, it says that he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. Guys, that was the lowest, the lowest form of slavery. That was the worst task a slave had to do. That was left for the, the lowest slave on the ladder to undo the sandals, and to clean the dirty, stinky, smelly feet. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for him. Much less. Guys, understand that. That's, again, same thing with us. Much less what he entrusts us to do. We're not worthy. Never, never get into this saying, man, God knew what he was doing when he picked me. We are all, all need to remain that humble place. Not a reed shaken in the wind, not vacillating, not blowing, but steady. Not worried about political correctness, but standing in his conviction and standing in courage. Guys, that needs to be us as well. We need to stand firm. We can't vacillate. We can't water down. It's not our message to change. We need to share the message, the truth of the gospel. And again, as we began today... Guys, we can't share the good news without sharing the bad news. 
not dressed in soft clothing, camel hair. That wasn't a fashion statement at the time. Locusts and honey. I don't know about you, I just get that weird picture. John screaming out, repent, repent, and I got that little grasshopper leg just, I don't know. Not trying to impress anybody. Not a man pleaser. Not a self pleaser. I mean, he wasn't in it for his own self glory and gratification. Again, I mean, look, the, the description is given it to us there for a reason. The simplest of things. He was concerned only about one opinion, one. And that was the one who sent him with the message. It needs to be the same with us, guys. Not worried about what other people think, not worried about how it looks with me, but only concerned with the Lord Jesus. And at the end of the day, we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Guys, we've been entrusted with this message. We need to be faithful messengers. I'm challenged again even Today, as I, as I look at this with, with John, one who was, who was so faithful with the message that God gave him to deliver, it wasn't about him. It was about the Lord who sent him. I want to challenge each one of us as we go out of here today. But to bring it back, it's a blessing. We get to celebrate communion here together this morning. And we, with this, for those of us here today, born again believers here today, this is, this is, Jesus tells us to do this as a celebration. We come together and we remember. We remember with that, we remember our hopeless, helpless state that we were all dead men and women walking. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. There was nothing that we could do to fix that, but God, in his great love and his mercy, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what we celebrate together. We, we remember all that he did for us. When none of us deserved anything but his punishment and his wrath, he poured out his love on us. And while we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to invite us, if there's, if, that we go before the Lord openly and honestly. If there's something in our life right now that's not pleasing to him, let's deal with that. Not make excuses for it. Not try, to, not try to push it aside, but confession. One of the things about repentance is it's not a one-time thing. Being born again is a one-time. The first time you do it, that's, that, that's being born again. That's a one-time event. But proof of repenting once is that you repent regularly. That we move through our life and we repent. When we see things in our life, God points those out. The Holy Spirit reveals things to us. We turn from those things and we turn back to him. And again, as we said in 1 John, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's do that as we, as we sing together, as we go before the Lord with our hearts. Let's, if God's got some business to do with us, let's let that business get taken care of. But secondly... If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I've been praying for you all week. And I know you're here. In a room this size, there, there's probably many of you. You cannot be saved because you come to this church. 
You cannot be saved because you've gone to church your whole life. You can't be saved because you read your Bible every day. You can't be saved. None of those things can save you. Only the blood of Jesus can save you. And if you've never come to a point in your life where you have repented of your sin, you've turned from your sin, and you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do that today. And while we, while we sing, while we, we've, the elements are distributed, I've asked our prayer team, to, uh, pastors and elders, to be available up in front under the screens up here. And I want to invite you to come forward at this time and pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, I know right now what's going through your mind. I know what's, what's racing through you. Is There is no way I'm going to get up in front of all of these people and walk forward. First of all, it does require humility. It requires coming to that point that says, I'm going to humble myself before Almighty God. And that does require even some humility in front of us. But I'll tell you, there's no safer place to do that in a room full of a bunch of other people who have been in that same spot who did the same thing. And I also want to encourage you. If you're saying, I can't do that, I'm not going to go up there alone, you don't have to. Ask the people around you. Ask the person sitting next to you. Ask whoever you came with. Ask them if you don't even know them to come up. I guarantee they will. They'll come up with you. Don't leave here today, though. Don't harden your heart. God has provided a way for you. The warning has come. The evacuation notice is here. But, but the choice is yours. You can, you can say, oh, I'll tough it out. I don't think it's going to be as bad as, as everybody says. And you're wrong. It's going to be worse. Or you could say, you know what? I have more time. I'll do that another time. You don't know. You might, you, tomorrow is not guaranteed. This afternoon is not guaranteed. I'm doing a memorial service this afternoon. Not guaranteed. So don't put it off. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we thank you for what you did. Because you alone could do it. And that is to take our place. To take our punishment. Lord, all of us deserve to face the wrath of God forever. All of us deserve that eternal death. But Jesus, somehow, some way, you took it for us. And this morning, we just thank you and we praise you for that amazing fact. Holy Spirit, right now, I ask that you would move on all of our hearts. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. Amen.